All right, you can be seated. It's been a fantastic morning, and honestly, it's been a fantastic month. Uh, if maybe you've missed out over the last month, today we're wrapping up our annual July teaching called Your Story Matters. It's really this idea that every single life matters. You're no accident, you're no afterthought, you're not wasting space. Your life matters. It really does. And I wish I could just sort of sit down in front of every single person and say, man, what, what, your life matters, your story matters. In fact, one day somebody's gonna tell the story of our lives. And so it's this idea that if you're not an accident, it's this idea that if you're here, it's this idea that if you're in relationship with anybody, your life matters, your story matters, you're writing a story. So what would happen if we lived a better story? What would happen if we connected our lives and our stories to the story of God? And so over the last several weeks, we've just been looking at it from several different angles. Week one was about developing a journey mindset. That a lot of times the reason why we live small stories is because we have this transaction mentality when it comes to the spiritual life. And we forget that this life really is a journey. Spiritual life is a journey that if we're not dead, then God's not done with us. Right? If we're still breathing, God's still working inside of us. And so honestly, the goal of the journey isn't necessarily perfection because this side of heaven, none of us are gonna attain that. The goal really isn't perfection, it's progression. In other words, the, the goal is to stay on the journey, right? Through the detours, the ups and downs, the, the bumps along the way that we would develop what's called a long obedience in the same direction, that we'd stay committed to the journey. And then week two, we came back and we talked about the words of Jesus when Jesus talked about death. And that whole message was just this reminder that this earth is not our home. That when we forget that there's eternity, when we forget there, that, that we're designed for more than this earth, if we're not careful, we get so caught up in the here and now, we get so caught up in promotions and jobs and stuff and stress. And so what we said in week number two is that our view of eternity impacts the story that we live today. And I'm telling you, that's, that message has just been shared and has rung true with so many people. And it's that reminder that this earth is not, we're not home yet. And then last week we came back and we talked about this idea that we have a role to play, that God's writing a story and he invites us to be part of that story. And we've got a role to play. And the best way for us to live that out is to discover what our gift is and to plug it in and to put it to work, discover what that gift is and, and put it to work. And so if you haven't done it yet, you can go to the website, sugarhill.church forward slash YSM for Your Story Matters. And there's a spiritual gift inventory that you can take on there. And I'd encourage you if you've never done this or even if you've done it and it's been a while, do that and then email me, bobby at sugarhillchurch.com and let me know the top three that came back on that report. We'd love to know that and celebrate that. And if you wanna have conversation about that, we'd love to do that. And so if you missed any of these weeks, I wanna encourage you to check them out because it's part of this big teaching that your life matters. Well, today as we wrap it up, we're talking about something that I think is gonna be helpful for a lot of people. In fact, this could be a message that, that you look back on many years from now and you'd be like, that was the moment that God really shifted that journey for me. This kind of teaching from God's word is the kind of teaching that could take people that are a little bit frustrated with where they're at, a little bit disappointed with where they're at, and God could use it because this morning we're talking about starting your story or for many of us to restart our story. See, what I've found is oftentimes we get stalled out along the way. 
Oftentimes there's something we know that we're meant to do. There's something that God's called us to do. There's something that God's designed us for, God's placed on our heart to do, but somewhere along the way, if we're not careful, we get distracted. If we're not careful, we lose sight of God's story and we start living for a smaller story. And sometimes we just need this reminder to say, you know what, I'm gonna restart the story. Here's a couple of symptoms I look for in my life when I realize I'm drifting or I'm distracted. One is when we develop a pass or fail mentality. Sometimes when we start getting off track and we start living for a smaller story, we develop this past or fail mentality where we think it's all good or all bad. And so the moment we make one mistake, the moment that something doesn't go right, we quickly shift into that failure thinking and we ignore that it really is a journey. It's not uh, uh, black and white, it's not uh, uh, pass or fail, it's a journey. A second thing I look for in my own life is when I'm overly critical. That's a symptom of living for a smaller story when I get overly critical of my own life. I, I, I beat myself up, I extend grace to other people but I don't extend it to myself. And when we become critical of other people as well, we point out everybody else's junk while ignoring our own junk. A third symptom I look for in my life, I don't know if this is actually a word but I put it in my notes, catastrophizing. <laughs> Spell check, let it go through, I don't know Tim. But this is when we assume the worse, even when there's no reason to assume the worse. It's where we make everything so, oh, here we go again, right? And we assume the worse. Uh, and uh, this is similar to the next word, which also was in spell check, universalizing. Or as Bush would say, W would say universalization, right? I don't know. I thought that'd be funny, it wasn't. <laughs> That's when we take a bad experience and we assume it's true across the board. Everything's falling apart and waiting for the other shoe to drop. These are all symptoms of what I call living small, where we get so consumed with the drama or the junk that we get pulled into a smaller story than the story of God. And so for any of you that feel like there's unfinished business in your life, for any of you that, man, you feel like you thought there would be more, for any of you that have ever felt, man, I thought by now I would have had it together, or by now I thought I would have cleaned it up, or by now I thought God would have answered. If you've ever felt that, you know a little bit of what it, like, what it was like in the days of Haggai. In the Old Testament, there's this little, little book called Haggai, and it's really about people that knew that there was something they were meant to do. They were invited into the story of God. They, there was something they were meant to do, and yet somewhere along the way, they got distracted. Somewhere along the way, they stopped short. And so God shows up and he uses this prophet Haggai to call them to action, to call them to restart their story, to call them just to say, hey, don't, don't, don't sit back and, and let this moment pass, but lean into what God's doing. And that's what I'm asking us to do today, to ask yourself as I'm talking through this, what are the unfinished things in your life? What are the things that, that, that are undone yet? What are the conversations you need to have? What are the decisions or the steps you need to take? What is it that God's asking you to do? Because what I've found is the biggest barrier for most of us to live a better story isn't an external barrier. Oftentimes the greatest barrier we face are the excuses in our own heads, the excuses we come up with in our own minds. And so this morning, I want to call those excuses out and then challenge you or encourage you to replace those excuses with 
a choice. And so here's the background. Haggai chapter one is all about this. Uh, if you know the background, the nation of Israel had moments where they were close to God, then they had moments where they drifted off, they got distracted. And so God allowed the enemy, in this case, the Babylonians to capture them. So around 587 BC, this guy named Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he crushes the army of Israel and he takes thousands of them captive. He takes them back to his homeland. And uh, so for 70 years, they're living away from Jerusalem. They're living away from their hometown. For 70 years, they're living in bondage. Well, after they were taken into bondage, King Nebuchadnezzar sent his, sent his army into Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, and they demolished the walls, they tore down the gates, and they burned the temple of God down to the ground. This was a really big deal. The temple wasn't just a building. It wasn't just something you passed. This was where God would meet with his people. And so for 70 years, there's this remnant group of people from Israel that are taken into bondage in Babylon, and they're praying one prayer, God, would you let us go back home? God, would you free us? God, would you, would you let us go back to Jerusalem? And when we get back to Jerusalem, we're gonna rebuild the temple. They prayed this for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. God, would you free us? God, would you rescue us? God, we sinned, we blew it, we get it. But God, would you resource? God, would you let us go back home so that we can rebuild your house, so that we can worship you again, so that we can be the light of God in this dark world? That was their prayer. God answers that prayer. And so some years later, a group of them return back to Jerusalem. Their one job is to build the temple. They got started, they laid the foundation, and then they stopped. And for 14 years, they lived a lesser story, 14 years. 50 years praying one prayer, God, would you free us? God, would you let us go back? 60 years praying that one prayer, God, would you let us go back home? We're gonna rebuild your house. And then they get back and they stopped and the barrier they faced were the excuses in their head. Excuse number one, if you're a note taker, you can jot these down inside the handout today. But excuse number one, why do we stop? Why is it that we don't live a better story? Excuse number one is when we say it is just too hard. It's too hard. It's too hard. So what happens in Haggai 1 is God raises up this prophet to speak into their life. And what happened for the nation of Israel is when they got started on the temple and they started rebuilding the temple, uh, things went well just for a little while. And then they started facing opposition. Then people started pushing back. Uh, the, the enemy started naysaying. The enemy started distracting them. And somewhere along the way, they decided that these people that were supposed to rebuild the house of God, they thought it would be easier just to stop the project instead of finish what God had called them to do. And so God says to them in Haggai 1 verse 2, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, he says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Let me just hang out there for a second. They've been praying one prayer for 50, 60, 70 years. God, let us go home. Let's rebuild your house. They've been praying this one thing for decades. Now they have the chance to do it. And now what do they say in verse two? The time has not yet come. Do you see the disconnect there? Do you see the frustration there? I think it's interesting when you look at the beginning of verse two, it says the Lord of hosts says this, these people, do you see that, these people? For any parent, you know what God's doing there, right? I remember a, couple, a while back, we went to lunch with some of our dear friends and 
uh, as we're eating, uh, one of their kids was coloring, one of their kids was being, uh, you know, polite, and then one other kid was just going crazy, woo, you know, just running around. And the husband turned to the wife and said, your daughter. <laughs> Have y'all been there before? When they're perfect and well-behaved, it's our children, our daughter. But in that moment, it's like your daughter. It's almost like God's doing that in Haggai. Because usually in the Old Testament, God says, my people, my people, my people, my people, my people. But now when they are frustrating him, now when they have paused on what they're supposed to do, God doesn't say my people. He says, these people, these people say the time has not yet come. It's almost like the moment that opposition showed up, the moment that it wasn't easy enough for them, the moment that it seemed like this isn't what we thought it would be, they used the difficulty as an excuse not to finish what they were meant to do. It's almost as if they're blaming God. Well, God, if this was your plan, God, if this is what you wanted us to do, then you should have paved the way. You should have gotten rid of all the enemy. God, if this is your will, then it should be easy. And sometimes we fall into that same thinking. We think, well, if I say yes to God, then everything ought to work out. If I commit my life to God, then everything ought to be perfect. If I say yes to him, then everybody ought to be nice at work. And if I tithe, then, you know, there ought to be more money in the bank. You just go on and on and on. We don't say it out loud, but internally we buy into this idea that the more we say yes, then the easier it ought to be. But we forget that there is an enemy and so when the moment we say yes to God, the enemy is going to show up. And so it's not often easier to do what's right. But don't allow that to be an excuse. Don't allow that faulty thinking to be, well, if it's not easy, then it must not be God's will. What I found, at least in my own life and in the testimony of this church, is the more we lean into what's right, the more opposition shows up. So oftentimes opposition to me is not a sign that we're not doing God's will. Oftentimes the frustration or the struggle is a sign we're moving in the right direction. Are y'all tracking with me? I don't know if that makes sense. I need another cup of coffee, but it's this reminder that things that matter cost us something. Things that are meaningful aren't necessarily easy. And so I wanna invite you to consider replacing excuse is too hard with a choice. And here's the choice that we would decide ahead of time that I will do what is right, not what is easy. That's a choice any one of us can make that we can say on the front end. And this is a great uh, sort of walk through as you get ready for this week, regardless of what stage you are in life and regardless of what phase you are in life, that as we get ready to walk into this week, God, as best as I can, I'm gonna choose to do what is right, not what's easy. Another way of saying this is I'm gonna choose to do the hard right over the easy wrong. That we'd replace our excuse with a choice that, that, that when we see opposition, that we'd say, I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna do the right thing. Let me give you some examples. For them, it would have been easier for them not to build the temple, but it was the right thing to do and the hard thing to do to get back to work. For us, it would be easier to choose not to forgive somebody. It would be easier for us to write that person off. It is harder to do what Jesus tells us to do and to do what Ephesians 4 says to do, to go to somebody and speak the truth in love. That's harder, but it's the right thing to do. It would be easier to harbor unforgiveness in our life. It'd be easier to harbor bitterness in our life. It would be easier not to reach out to somebody and to tell them about Jesus, but the right thing to do is to not walk away from things that are hard, but to lean in 
Here's that truth again. I will do what is right and not what's easy. They're living for a smaller story. Excuse number one is too hard. Excuse number two is we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. Their second excuse that you see through the behavior is they're like, we, we don't even know what to do. And so God comes back to them in verse four. He says, uh, you, you say it's not time to rebuild my house. And so it's almost like he's being a little uh, sarcastic with them. And so for any of us that are, have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, <laughs> you'll love this verse. I know it's not in the assessment online, but I feel like it's true in my own life. Uh, but listen to verse four, he says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? God's asking them this question. He's like, all right, so you return home, you prayed one prayer. Your prayer was God, we're gonna rebuild your house. They get started. It's not as easy as they thought it would be. And so they stop building his house. And for the next 14 years, they built their own houses. And when they built their own houses, they didn't build little starter homes. My translation that I'm reading from today, ESV says paneled houses. NLT that we preach from a lot says luxurious houses. In other words, they let God's house lie in ruins while they built themselves nice houses. Do you see how crazy that is? This is like the modern day version of HGTV. When somebody walks in the house, they're like, "Ooh, it's got granite, awesome. It's got shiplack, let's buy it, right? They're building themselves nice houses. We don't know what to do, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna put ourselves first is what they end up doing. If we're not careful, we do that. Here's, here's choice number two that we can replace this with. Instead of sitting back saying, I don't know what to do, choice number two, is to say, I will put God's calling ahead of my personal comfort. I'll put God's calling ahead of my personal comfort. And so for them, God had called them to do something, to rebuild his house. But instead of building his house, they built their own houses. They put their comfort ahead of his calling. And if we're honest, we do that in our own lives. So there's something we're meant to do. And if we're not careful, we shift focus and we focus on self-preservation and we focus on our own comfort. And we're like, God, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know where to get started. I don't even know how this is gonna work out. And I love how practical God is in this passage because when you look at verse seven, God breaks it down for them. God shows them exactly what to do. Here's what he says in verse seven. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And that's what I'm asking us to do, consider our ways. What's the unfinished thing in our life? Consider your ways, verse eight, go up to the hills, bring down the wood and build the house. Do you see that? Well, we don't know what to do. That's too big of a project. We don't know what to do. All right, here's what you do. I'm gonna give you three steps to do this. Step number one, go up into the hills. Step number two, bring down the trees. Step number three, build my house. Yeah, 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 that sounds too easy. Oh, that, that's not, no, here's what you do. Step number one, go up into the hills. Step number two, bring down the wood. Number three, build my house. That's why, uh, consequently, I preach with points because God did it, so why shouldn't I do it, right? I thought I'd get an amen. I got a little bit of one. Well, that's just the way I think. But anyway, so go up into the hills, bring down the wood, and build my house. What I found, one of the obstacles we have for restarting our stories is we get paralyzed 
because we think we need to know everything before we even get started. Is anybody else wired that way? That oftentimes we wanna know, God says, all right, step number one, go up in the hill. Step number two, bring down the wood. Step number three, build my house. And I, I guarantee you there's people in the crowd that's like, yeah, but God, what's step number five, six, and seven? No, 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 don't worry about five, six, seven. Start with one, two, three. No, no God, we wanna know what's gonna happen at five, six, seven, eight. Not, I'm not sure what happened to step four there, but that's sort of, I'm from Mississippi, so you'll have to forgive me. But so often we wanna know what, what's the end of the story. And God's like, no, 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 don't worry about the end of the story. Worry about starting the story. Yeah, but God, we wanna know seven, eight, nine, 10. No, 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 start with one, two, and three. Go over the hills, cut down the trees, build my house. And so I don't know what that is for you, but what I found is so often we get paralyzed because we're like, I don't even know where to get started. And what I found is if you would even take five minutes with a blank piece of paper and just ask yourself, what's the next thing that I could do? What's the next thing that I could do? What's the next easy and obvious thing I could do? I've seen so many people get clarity and find freedom just by pausing and pushing aside the disbelief, pushing aside all the overwhelm and saying, what's the next easy and obvious thing I can do and to get what I call our small wins in your life. Let me give you just some random examples. One is uh, people feel so overwhelmed by finances. They're like, I just wanna get out of debt. I wanna get out of debt. I wanna get out of debt. And it's just too hard. I don't, I, I don't understand all that. If I meet with a financial advisor, it's too complicated. I don't know what to do. Step number one, download a free budget tool. Go to uh, you, uh, I Was Broke and Now I'm Not's website. There's a fantastic free Excel spreadsheet or an online version of it as well. And just say, you know what, for the next three months, every month, I'm gonna try to live by this budget and give yourself grace. Again, journey mindset, not pass or fail because budgeting is not an easy behavior to build in. But man, if you begin to, step number one, download a budget. Step number two, live on less than you make, because most people don't do that, live on less than you make. And step number three, anything that's left over, throw it towards the debt, one, two, and three. Could you get fancier than that? Absolutely, but man, instead of being paralyzed, just get started. Step number one, I'm gonna download a budget or maybe this fall jump into an I was broke class. Step number two, begin to live on less than I make. Step number three, take whatever's left and throw it at my debt. Or some people are like, man, I, I just wanna get healthy. I, I, I wanna be around for a long, long time. I got kids or grandkids and I, I wanna be the healthiest version of me. I don't know where to start. I don't know where to start. Step number one, just start moving for 30 minutes every day. Step number two, cut out just the simple stuff that you already know shouldn't be there. And step number three, have some sort of form of accountability. Step one, two, three. Well, I wanna grow in my faith. I don't know where to start. When other people talk about God, they, they seem so close to God. But when I, when I think about God, I feel so distant. Where do I start? Where do I start? Where do I... Step number one, listen to the weekday podcast every single weekday. It's a way to get scripture and prayer into your life. Step number two, jump into a small group. Do I love it that we come to worship? Absolutely. But what I've found is that people, uh, small groups are like rocket fuel for your faith because you grow in relationships with other people and with the Lord himself. And step number three, write down or do whatever he tells you to do. One, two, and three. Can you do more than that? Absolutely. But man, for most of us, we just need to start or we just need to restart. Are y'all tracking with me? Just to take five five minutes and to say, what is that thing that's unfinished? Maybe it's to share your faith with somebody in your family. 
Maybe it's to say, I want a richer marriage. I don't know where to start. I want a richer marriage. I want to make sure when the kids move out that we're not just two strangers living under the same roof. Well, where do you even start? Where do you even start? Number one, own it. Say, I'm sorry for not investing in our relationship. Number two, go on date nights to carve out time where it's just, I heard a woo over there. That's awesome, right? And number three, make daily deposits into that relationship because every relationship's like a bank account. It's either got a positive balance or a negative balance. And so we need to make small daily deposits over time. It's just one, two, three. I know I'm simplifying it, but I hope you get the point that we can make a choice to say, I'm gonna put God's calling over my comfort. And one easy way to do that is to start somewhere. Excuse number one, it's too hard. Excuse number two, we don't even know what to do. Excuse number three, it probably won't work out anyway. I don't think anybody plans to be a downer in life. I don't think anybody consciously wakes up and says, you know what, I'm gonna be eat or today and I'm just gonna talk poorly about, every, well, it's just not gonna work, it's not gonna work, the other shoe's gonna fall, catastrophe's gonna come. I don't think anybody plans that, but if we're honest, we get worn out, don't we? And we buy into this lie that the best days are behind us and there's no way that God could use us. There's no way that this could work out. And there's no way, no way, no way, no way. In fact, there were some of these people in Haggai's day, when you get to the end of chapter one, God reminds them in verse 13, but I am with you, declares the Lord. And what happens at the end of chapter one is they get excited. God stirs up something inside of them and they come together. They're like, we're gonna do the work. We're gonna get back to work. We're gonna do what God's called us to do. And then 30 days later, they stop again. 30 days later, when you get to Haggai chapter two, you find two groups of people. You've got the younger crowd that this is their first time to build a temple. And so they're super excited. They're like, we can't wait, we can't wait. This is gonna be amazing. The temple of God is gonna be restored. And then you had an older group that had been alive during the time of the first temple. And they remember how awesome the first temple was. And so now they're naysayers. They're like, man, the first temple was amazing. There's no way we're gonna build something that's remotely close to how amazing that first temple was. And so they were downing it. They're like, man, it's never gonna work out the way the first temple did. And if we'd be honest, some of us fall into that category. We, even as I'm talking, there's all these negative things popping up. Yeah, Bobby, but you don't know my story. And yeah, Bobby, you don't know what it's like. And yeah, Bobby. And I would just say, would you pause for a moment and remember what God said to them at the end of chapter one, I am with you. I am with you. And then in chapter two, I love what God says to them in verse four. He says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. He says in verse four, be strong, O Joshua. The end of verse four, be strong people declares the Lord, work for I am with you. God shows up and in the middle of this moment when they've got this excuse, it's probably not gonna work, it's not gonna work, it's not gonna work. God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be strong declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, be strong all the people and do the work, verse five, for my spirit is with you. Fear not, be strong, be strong, be strong, and do the work. Excuse number three is it's not gonna work out. The truth or the choice that we can plug in is I will obey God and I will trust him with the results. See, when you look at 
living a smaller story, we confuse oftentimes our job and God's job. Sometimes we're like, well, what if it doesn't work out? And what if, what, what if, what if, what if, what if? But here's your part of the job. Here's my part of the job. My part of the job is to obey God. God's part of the job is whatever the results are. Your part of the job is to do the next right thing. God's job is whatever comes of that. Your job and my job is obedience. God's job is to bring the results. Can you imagine the mental shift and the power of what would happen if we replaced our excuses with intentional choices and said, God, I'm going to put your calling ahead of my comfort. God, I'm going to obey you regardless of what it costs me. And God, I'm going to believe that you're the one that's in charge of the results. I'm gonna do the next right thing. And man, I believe that if we'd make these three choices, not just once, because again, it's a journey, not an event. If we'd make these three choices over and over again, what I think you'll find is your story will get better as you live in the story of God himself. But you gotta get started. If you don't know Christ personally, the place that you start is that relationship with him. If there's never been a moment that you've asked him to forgive you of your sins and give you a brand new start, that's where this all begins. It starts with having our sins forgiven, having him live inside of us and that we would walk with him daily. And so if that's never happened, that's, that's square one. That's stepping stone number one. For others of us, maybe it is baptism. Maybe you've seen baptism around here. You've heard us talk about it. Jesus himself said that one of the first things that we do is to be baptized publicly, declaring our faith in him. And so maybe for you, you're wondering, why do I feel this friction in my relationship with God? And God's like, well, you haven't done what I've asked you to do. And maybe that next step is to be baptized. Maybe for others, it's a conversation that needs to be had. Maybe it's to pick up the phone and there's been a relationship that's been strained for a lot of years and just bury the hatchet and say, I don't even remember why this relationship went off the rails, but I just wanna own it and say, I'm sorry, I love you. I want to reconnect with you. Maybe it's in a marriage that feels like it's melting down and you just wanna say, I acknowledge my part of this and I wanna do whatever I can to invest. I don't know where that is for you, but maybe today we'd leave here and say, I'm gonna get started or I'm gonna restart living a better story. And I can't think of a better way for us to say that today than for us to come together as a family, as a body of Christ and observe the Lord's table today. Uh, we have all across this room, several tables set up that have the elements of the Lord's Supper where Jesus gave us this powerful picture of Jesus doing everything that we've talked about today. Jesus choosing the hard right over the easy wrong. It would have been easier for Jesus to stay in heaven and say, well, they can figure it out themselves. It was harder, but necessary for Jesus to come to this earth. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life and died on the cross for our sins. And so when Jesus had his last meal with his disciples, he used this as a picture. He picked up this, this bread and he said, this bread is my body that's broken for you. Then he picked up this cup. He said, this is the, my blood. This is the sign of the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. And so today, if you're a Christ follower, in a moment, I'm gonna invite you to come to whatever table is closest to you and they're spread out throughout the room. And I'm gonna invite you just to pick up a stack of these cups. It's actually two cups that are stacked together. The bottom cup has the bread, the top cup has the juice. And uh, man, I'm gonna invite you in a moment to come and get that and then bring it back to your seat. 
and for us to observe this together. If you need a gluten-free option, there is one here at this front table. But if you're not a believer, maybe during this time, the best thing to do would just be to bow your head and just say, God, would you show me yourself today? Maybe there's uh, some of us that know him, but there's unconfessed sin in your life. Maybe as we walk through this, before you take it, you would say, God, would you clean me up? God, would you help me to take the next step, the next right step? But I'm gonna pray for us. We enter into this very special time. And then I'm gonna invite you to come and receive one of these cups and bring it back to your seat. And then I'll give you instructions. Heavenly Father, so we come to your table today. We come remembering the price that you paid. We reflect on your total sacrifice. We renew our focus on you today. So over these next moments, would you help us to turn from our sin and turn to you? Help us to live as people that have been washed by your blood today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you just to come to whichever table is nearest to you. Grab one of these stacks of cups and very prayerfully and quietly bring it back to your seat. And I'll give you instructions in just a moment. take these two cups and separate them. There's nothing fancy about these. What's powerful is not the physical thing that's in these cups. What's powerful is the symbol of them. Jesus was giving his followers this picture of what it meant for him to go to the cross. And so he took the bread and he broke it. And when he did that, he said, this is my body that's broken for you. It's the reminder that salvation for us is free, but for him, it cost him everything. He died a public humiliating death, not for his own sins, but for my sins, for your sins and for the sins of the world. And so on that night with his disciples, he lifted up that bread, he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, as often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the picture of your body. Thank you that you broke it and that you're alive today. Help us to live in light of the price you paid. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The scripture tells us Jesus took that cup, and it's again a picture 
for years and years and years, the, the people of God had been waiting for the day that one day he'd wipe away their sins for once and for all. And Jesus says, this is how it's done. This is my blood. This is the new covenant. That when Jesus died, he died once and for all. So that if anybody would put their faith and trust in him, they'd forever be forgiven of their sins and be washed white as snow. And Jesus lifted that cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. As you drink, do this in remembrance of me. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we pray today? Heavenly Father, thank you that we get to come to your table today that we get to be reminded that you're not done with us. Thank you that you're so, so patient with us that even when we live a smaller story that you call us back, you invite us back into your story. I pray in this room today that you'd cause hope to rise up. I pray that you'd help in this room to cause there to be a desire to live a better story. I pray that Father, you would stir us up somewhere that you did in Haggai that where there's unfinished business that you'd call us back to that work and that you would remind us that we're not doing it on our own, but that you are with us. So Heavenly Father, help us to be a changed people, help us to be a different people, help us to live this out, that we would choose your will over our comfort, that we choose to do the hard right over the easy wrong, that we would choose to obey you and to trust you with the results. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We love you guys. Hope you have a fantastic rest of your Sunday. Join us next week. Pastor Chuck is back teaching. He's got an incredible word called a, uh, a king, a priest, and a kingdom. It's going to be so great. And so I invite you to be back next Sunday. Have a great day. I love you guys. Enjoy your day.